Lock S-Foils in attack position with X-Wing, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 25, that's a quarter of a century old, episode 25 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I am your host, Joe. I am here again to talk to you about some wonderful games this week, particularly a really wonderful game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So I'm really happy this week to be back uh, talking to you guys. It feels like it's been a while since I've done a show, even though it's been a normal amount of time, but I guess... Because of the topic this week, I'm a little more excited, so let's get right to it. We've got a lot to say, but first, as usual, a little bit, actually more than a little bit, of news. So firstly, in the news, uh, the team that worked on uh, the original Planetscape Torment have kickstarted a new game in the vein of the original great RPG game, you know, Planetscape Torment, called Torment Tides of Numenera. Uh, this project was the fastest Kickstarter ever to hit $1 million of funding. I can't quite recall exactly. I can't remember if it was uh, under a day or a couple of hours or something like that. But I actually watched this happen. I watched it like blast up to $1 million really fast. Uh, so suffice it to say, they've already met their uh, their initial funding goal. But there's still 19 days left on the project if you do want to pledge your support for what promises to be a very great game. Planetscape Torment is obviously a game that I'm going to cover at some point on this show a uh, little later in the uh, in the time period than what I normally well not what I normally cover I've covered stuff I think that's from around 99 and I've covered stuff from around then so uh, yeah <laughs> Planetscape Torment incredible game we can only hope that the same team doing Torment Tides of Numenera will uh, will have just as much success uh, secondly I reported last week that Lord British that's uh, Richard Garriott creator of the Ultima series, had something to say. Well, on March 8th, he did have something to say, and he said it, and it is a Kickstarter for a game called Shroud of the Avatar Forsaken Virtues. Uh, So this is Richard Garriott returning to his fantasy RPG roots. So I guess we can expect a game uh, in the vein of the Ultima series here. So if you're a fan of Ultima, and I know many, many, many of you are, because... I've gotten quite a few requests to cover the series, and frankly, I'm a little nervous to do so. But, uh, you know, if you are a fan of the Ultima series, you should give this project a look. Uh, they haven't quite met their funding goal yet. They're uh, less than $50,000 away from their $1 million goal, and they still got 20 days left in the campaign. So please go check that one out, Shroud of the Avatar, Forsaken Virtues. I'll post the link in the show notes, as I always do. Now, finally... I believe I spoke uh, quite a while ago now, maybe almost a year ago, about uh, the Shadowrun Returns project from uh, from 2012. They raised $18 million for a new game in the Shadowrun universe, and that was quite unprecedented at the time, and actually still is for a game project. It's quite a lot of money to raise. Uh, well, the developers on this project, Shadowrun Returns, have released a 20-minute alpha gameplay video, and frankly, the game is looking great. Uh, definitely reminds me a bit of Fallout and Fallout 2, kind of with this, uh, you know, 
third-person isometric turn-based combat RPG kind of style. Uh, I'll link the video in the show notes. I also have a Kotaku article that talks a little about a little bit about it. If uh, if you guys want to take a look, it's really cool. If you have 20 minutes to kill, uh, give it a watch. Otherwise, just watching little parts of it will will give you a good idea of what they are trying to do with that. All right, so we got a couple of emails this week before we get going. First from a new emailer, Colin. So Colin writes, Hey Joe, long-time listener, first-time commenter. Well, I have never played the X-Wing series, in the wake of last week's episode, I would like to bring to your attention another quote-unquote children's game that really holds up and is fun for all ages. I'm referring to the Humongous Entertainment Games. Uh, well, I guess you couldn't really call them a series, but rather several series that are from the same company and are very stylistically similar, a la LucasArts Adventures. I'm sure that at least one of your listeners will wax nostalgic over some of the following names. Putt-Putt, Freddy Fish, Pajama Sam, Spy Fox, and Fatty Bear. If I had to give you an elevator pitch for the series, I'd say over a dozen adventure games helmed by Ron Gilbert, yes, that Ron Gilbert, that you've never played. Even if you never do a show on these games, I strongly encourage you and any listeners hearing this to at least give these games a shot. Demos for these games are available for free on ScumVM's website, as well as the iOS App Store and, I assume, the Android Marketplace. He gives a link here, more info on the company. There's a Wikipedia for a humongous game developer, and the website of their current distributors is NimbusGames.com. I'll put those in the show notes, and and great, thanks. Uh, you know, that's really cool. I, I, I feel like I vaguely have memories of these games. I'm, I'm certain I've never played them, but I had no idea that Ron Gilbert was involved and uh you know i recently got back into uh, ron gilbert i started following him on twitter he has a very entertaining twitter account called at uh, grumpy gamer where he talks about you know current stuff that he's working on and you know it's just uh all around snarky uh, older gamer <laughs> he has a lot of fun stuff so thanks for that i'm definitely going to check those out and uh and god knows you know uh, th- there is a limited amount of content that uh that i have and you know i can't always only cover games that I've played because there's much more out there and there's much more interesting games out there than than I've played. So, hey, there may be a show on them in uh, in the future. God knows. And uh, great. So thanks for listening. Thanks for sending an email. And uh, thanks for all that information. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Over So on to the main topic for this week, one of my all-time favorite game series, X-Wing. The X-Wing series consists of four games published by LucasArts. The initial two games were also developed in-house by LucasArts, and the final two were done by Totally Games. We'll get into details about that later. The first game in the series, known as X-Wing, came out in the year 1993. So as we usually do, let's quickly discuss the genre of X-Wing in more general terms. X-Wing is, of course, a space combat simulator. We've seen a few of these to this point, including Wing Commander way back in Episode 2 and Independence War back in Episode 20. Well, not a ton has changed this time around. A space combat simulator takes the concepts, themes, and objectives of, I guess, a more terrestrial flight simulator and puts them in space. So basically, this means that you take control of a character who is placed in direct control of a small to medium-sized spacecraft. Missions cover the gamut of, you know, military-style objectives, attack, escort, defense, rescue, and basically anything else you can think of. 
Uh, missions may follow a linear or branching style and may be fully scripted or a bit more free-flowing. A story is generally told via between-mission cutscenes or by in-mission events. So that's the basis basics of a uh, space sim. In addition to this, however, X-Wing is also a flavor of movie tie-in game. A movie tie-in takes the story, setting, and rules set out in a film or a series of films and builds a game around them. Uh, historically, this is done to varying degrees of success, as uh, most movies are not written with a tie-in video game in mind. Uh, movie tie-in games can sample from their source material in a variety of ways. For example, they can only take the world and create a new and unique story, and new characters and things like that in the same universe, all the way to faithfully following the events and the situations of a movie with the players taking control of the main characters and taking them through familiar situations. X-Wing does kind of a little bit of both. So let's move on to the story of X-Wing. Uh, well, it goes without saying, I'll say it anyways, X-Wing takes place in George Lucas's Star Wars universe. Now, I can go off on so many tangents here since I am a huge, and I mean huge, Star Wars fan. Uh, I love the movies, yes, I even enjoy the prequels. Uh, I'm an avid reader of Star Wars ex Expanded Universe novels, the West End Games source books, and more. I can tell you how many TIE Fighters an Imperial-class Star Destroyer carries, what's special about the planet Bonadan, and all kinds of other stuff. So I'll try and stick to the facts here. Uh, being that this is a Star Wars game, it is required by law to begin with an opening yellow text crawl, which gives us a quick overview of the universe as it is. So after the traditional fading away Star Wars logo and Star Wars theme music, we begin to read. It is a time of civil war. Using fear and intimidation, the Empire seeks to impose a new order on the galaxy. Only the Rebel Alliance stands in the way of their evil plans. Not yet willing to confront the Empire directly, the Rebels are marshalling their forces in secrecy. Even now, a group of Mon Calamari cruisers is being intercepted by a squadron of Imperial Star Destroyers. The Rebel fleet is outnumbered, but they have a surprise. The X-Wing Starfighter. So that's the crawl. The screen then pans over to a group of Imperial Star Destroyers patrolling near the planet Turkana. TIE interceptors launch from the closest destroyer's launch bay. We then cut to the bridge of said Star Destroyer. Sir. Our TIE interceptors have located a rebel fleet orbiting the planet Torkana. Excellent. Prepare the attack. Move our Star Destroyers within range and launch all TIE fighter squadrons. At once, sir. The TIEs then press their attack, resulting in the destruction of one of the rebel Mon Calamari Star Cruisers. We then move into the hangar of the lead rebel cruiser under the command of Rebel Admiral Akbar. We are under attack by Imperial Star Destroyers. Begin evasive maneuvers. Launch the X-Wing fighters. A group of X-Wings then launch and basically wipe the floor with the enemy ties. The victorious X-Wings fly off into the sunset and we enter the game proper. Uh, you know, while that intro didn't provide us with a ton of story, it certainly gave us a taste of what the game promises to be like. So, X-Wing's story revolves around you, an unknown pilot recently recruited into the ranks of the Rebel Alliance. 
Uh, as with most entrants into the ranks of the Alliance military, uh, your backstory is basically your own. The game doesn't really provide it for you. Uh, you know, maybe you're a rebel sympathizer who's tired of the iron hand of imperial rule. Maybe you're a rogue with a heart of gold. Maybe you were wronged by the Empire and you're out for revenge. That is all up to you. The game tells its story via three tours of duty. Each tour begins with its own text crawl, and uh, their stories develop from mission to mission via text screens explaining individual missions in further detail and providing additional context. In the Star Wars timeline, these tours take place slightly before the events of the original Star Wars A New Hope movie and span to the end of that film with the destruction of the first Death Star. So the first tour, named A New Ally, has you aiding in the search for new allies for the Rebels. During the campaign, the opportunity to plant a nuclear device aboard an Imperial Star Destroyer presents itself. The second tour, The Great Search, focuses on the discovery of the original Death Star's plans. Missions result in the delivery of the plans to Princess Leia's blockade runner, defense of that blockade runner against an Imperial attack, and finally seeing off the ship to deliver the plans to Rebel Command. The end of this campaign flows directly into the start of A New Hope. Sadly, as most of us know, this campaign is for naught as Leia is captured and imprisoned aboard the Death Star. Finally, the third campaign, The Gathering Storm, follows the Rebels' route to the Battle of Yavin. The last three missions in this campaign are the final attack on the Death Star, including the famous Trench Run. You're So that's a quick and dirty overview of the story of X-Wing. But let's get down to it. We're here to talk gameplay. After the intro, you are brought to the Rebel flagship Independence, where you are welcomed aboard and asked to register yourself for pilot training. Of course, first things first, if you're playing the original disc-based version of the game, we contend with the manual-based copy protection. A series of three symbols is represented in Star Wars universe, uh, I guess we can call them letter symbols, otherwise known in-universe as Oribesh. Upon entering the proper series of Oribesh characters, you are truly welcomed aboard. Welcome to the flagship independence. If you don't register, or you enter an invalid copy protection key, you get a stern warning from the door guard, which for some reasons I still find funny to this day. You must register. So great, you are now a registered flight cadet of the Rebel Alliance. From here, you enter the main rotunda of the flagship. You now have three gameplay options. We'll go through them in the proper order, but, you know, really, you can mix and match them any way you would like. Firstly, as a new cadet, you're expected to report to the pilot proving ground. Clicking on this door whisks you off in a shuttle to a remote Rebel training facility in a secret location, which turns out to be a Nebulon B escort frigate sitting in space. Uh, this is the home of the pilot proving ground. It consists of an area of space littered with a series of platforms set up as a course. Each platform contains a set of one to three gates. The point of the proving ground is to take each of the ships in the game, the X-Wing, the Y-Wing, and the A-Wing, through eight levels of the course as quickly as possible. The proving ground, sometimes called the maze, teaches you how to handle your ship, how to adjust your power settings, and how to shoot at stationary targets. After the first few levels, the targets start to shoot back as well. Uh, destroying targets gives you a bonus to your timer. If you do not complete the level before the timer runs out, you fail the level. However, any previous levels you've completed do count. So if you start your X-Wing proving grounds at level 1 and fail on level 7, 
Uh, levels 1 to 6 are still counted. This is Red Leader. Don't worry about it. Try again. Eventually, you'll pass all eight levels for all three Starfighters and get a uniform patch proving that you're qualified on each fighter. Uh, you also earn a promotion to, from Flight Cadet to Flight Officer, which updates your rank epaulets to a, a white field with a single gold stud. Like in Wing Commander, whenever you are in the pilot locker room, you can view your uniform along with any awards you've gathered over your career. Uh, for the moment, you simply have the three fighter patches at the top of your sash, proving that you are qualified on each ship. This is Red Leader. Excellent. You're ready for combat. Now, let me tell you, when I was a kid, this section took a lot of time. If you go from one to eight in a single shot, uh, you know, this could take you well over an hour of straight flying per ship. So if there's one section of the game that seems like it was designed as a bit of a time sink, it is the pilot proving grounds. So from here, your shiny new flight officer heads back to the flagship independence and over one door to the historical missions segment. Historical missions are the next step in your training. These represent recreations of notable encounters in recent Alliance history, and uh, you know these encounters kind of point out specific advantages, uses, or challenges for each of the starfighter types. Each ship has six missions to cover, and they progress from easiest to hardest. The first historical mission generally has you attacking stationary targets. So for example, the first X-Wing mission is named Dev's Sidestep, and it has you attacking an Imperial starfighter base during prototype ties. Uh, if you're quick enough, they will not get manned, and they, they won't even fight back, and most of them won't even move. Other X-Wing missions have you learning to command wingmen, have you destroying a minefield, getting used to overwhelming odds, and even recreating the mission which rescued Admiral Akbar from Imperial captivity. So this might be a good time to talk about the differences between the three starfighters modeled in the game, since you know these historical missions are really uh, the first time you get to put each of the ships through their paces. So firstly, we have the famous X-Wing Starfighter. The X-Wing is considered a space superiority starfighter. It's the most versatile of all Rebel fighters. It carries four laser cannons, which can be set to single fire, dual fire linked, which means firing two cannons on opposite ends at once. So it kind of goes top left versus bottom right and then otherwise. So kind of like that. Or uh, quad fire linked, which means all four cannons fire at once. Uh, it also carries six proton torpedoes, either for damaging larger capital ships or intercepting slower moving Imperial fighters, such as TIE bombers. But where the X-Ring is really best suited is dogfighting. It is designed to destroy TIE fighters, and that is what it does best. Secondly, we have the venerable Y-Wing. The Y-Wing was the Rebels' main and only starfighter type before the design team at INCOM, who are the makers of the X-Wing, defected from the Empire with the X-Wing's plans. The Y-Wing now sees use as a second-line starfighter in back areas and a first-line bomber. The Y-Wing is slow, but it is built like a tank, uh, being able to take much more damage than the X-Wing. It sports dual forward-firing lasers for engaging enemy fighters. It also stores a total of eight proton torpedoes, making it an ideal bomber craft. Two or three Y-Wings can pose a threat to almost any Imperial ship short of a Star Destroyer. Finally, the Y-Wing mounts two ion cannons on a turret. Ion cannons are used to disrupt electronic systems and disable enemy ships to allow them to be captured by Alliance commandos. This happens quite a bit throughout the game. Despite the fact the ion cannons are mounted on a turret, though, they are locked forward. 
While some Y-Wings contain a second seat for a navigator and gunner, the Y-Wings modeled in this game are the Long Probe variants, which uh, only have a single crew member. Uh, in the expanded Star Wars universe, you, these Long Probe Y-Wings could actually have the ion cannons locked to any direction before flight, but uh, you know, in, in this game, the, op the only option is to lock them toward the front. So last, but most certainly not least, is the little A-Wing. The A-Wing is an interceptor and is the newest and fastest ship in the game thanks to its J-77 Event Horizon engines. Uh, with all the power management set to even, the A-Wing cruises at 120 megalites. Megalite is the kind of the weird Star Wars uh, measurement of speed. I'm not quite sure what it is, but at least the numbers give you kind of a frame of reference. So the A-Wing cruises at 120 megalites, whereas the X-Wing can only hit 100 and the Y-Wing travels at 80 megalites. The A-Wing mounts two laser cannons, and uh, though some Star Wars technical manuals say the laser cannons can depress up and down to a limited degree, uh, the game does not model this behavior. It also carries six concussion missiles. These missiles do much less damage than proton torpedoes, but they travel much faster and are much more maneuverable. They are designed to take down enemy fighters in a dogfight. You know, while the A-Wing may be a speed demon, it's very fragile, and it can't take very many hits before uh, it starts suffering damage. So completing all these historical missions gets you 18 mission patches on your uniform sash underneath the fighter qualification badges and a promotion to the rank of lieutenant, or for my British friends and my Canadian friends, lieutenant. So this now brings us to the bulk of the game, the Tours of Duty. Uh, this is the main portion of the game, despite the fact that you've already logged at least three hours in the Proving Ground and flown 18 historical missions. Uh, so when it comes to the tours, just like the rest of the game, you are not required to play them in order. However, they do follow a chronological sequence, so uh, if you want the best experience, you are encouraged to start with Tour 1 and play through to Tour 3. I believe each tour has... Uh, I think the first two tours have a total of 12 missions each, and then the third tour may have 14, or I may have the numbers kind of mixed up there, but uh, it's definitely kind of around 12, 12 to 14 missions per tour. So each tour of duty starts with an opening crawl describing the state of the universe at the start of the tour. You are then shown transferring from the flagship Independence to the Calamari Cruiser Defiance for combat operations. Uh, your mission briefings are now given by Admiral Akbar himself. Here's an example of a typical briefing. This is for Tour 1, Mission 1, Destroy Imperial Convoy. The attack against an Imperial Convoy has turned up a surprise. Blue Squadron reports the escorting Imperial Corvette wishes to defect. The Corvette's crew has stopped their ship and lowered their shields. The Y-Wings will guard the Corvette until a boarding party arrives. X-Wings from Red Squadron will destroy the Imperial freighters. Do your best to destroy all of the freighters. So after this, you have the option of reading additional background information about the mission. Uh, you then move into the pilot ready room. From here, you can view all the flights of rebel craft assigned to the mission, including your own. Uh, if you had other player pilots saved in, uh, in the game, you could assign them as your wingmen. Depending on their rank and their skill level, for example, most pilots have a skill ranking of rookie, veteran, ace, and top ace. Uh, so depending on their skill level, they would fly with better AI, making the game a little bit easier on you. Uh, this option, however, was only available on the original disc release, and uh, the audio you just heard 
from uh, that briefing is obviously from the CD-ROM release because the original disc release would not have uh, audio briefings. You just had to do some reading. So after fiddling with the mission setup, we see a cutscene of your assigned ship, in this case an X-Wing, taking off from the Defiance and entering hyperspace. This is how every mission begins. You are then dropped into the mission area and generally given a few moments before most of the action commences. You can use this time to gauge your situation. Uh, I usually started off by adjusting my power levels. A huge component to X-Wing is power management. Your fighter's power comes from its engines. You have the ability to distribute that engine power across not only your engines, but also your shields and weapons. You always start a mission in a balanced state. So one third of your total engine power is going to weapons and one third is going to shields. The final third is kept for use obviously by the engines. In this state, your weapons and shields are not charging or discharging. They maintain their current levels and your ship is traveling at its standard rated speed. Obviously this isn't ideal for a combat situation. You can change the recharge rate of weapons and shields to increased or maximum, which redirects more reserve engine power to those systems. So maxing out weapons and shields seems like a good idea, except it'll take power away from the engines and slow you down considerably. TIE fighters have the same top speed as an X-Wing, 100 megalites, so if you're slow, they will run circles around you. A standard combat configuration is to recharge weapons at an increased or maximum rate and leave shields at normal. This helps because you can transfer power stored in one system to another system. So if your weapons are fully charged, you can transfer power from them directly to your shields. Since weapons charge up much faster than shields do, it's really an ideal way to fight. Your lasers are always ready to go and you can dump power to the shields from them if you start taking hits. Meanwhile, you're only taking a, a kind of minor hit in speed. On the other hand, if your targets are way far off and you need to get to them in a hurry, you can dump all the power to your engines for a speed boost. Just be sure to stop short and, uh, and recharge your depleted weapons and shields before you go into combat. Frankly, power management is huge in this game. You will not survive if you don't change your settings. I also use power management as, as a sort of speed control. You know, you're chasing slower TIE bombers in an X-Wing or an A-Wing. Well, I could slow down to two-thirds throttle, but why not set all my recharge rates to maximum? Then I'm slowing down and recharging my shields at the same time. So... Aside from power management, another thing I do in the calm at the start of the mission is to set my targeting memory. Uh, are you protecting a rebel ship? Do you have an ultimate enemy target? Well, say I'm escorting, uh, I don't know, a freighter. Well, hit shift, target the freighter and hit shift F5 to store it in the F5 target memory. This way you can refer to it at any time to see its status. Maybe it's being attacked, maybe it's not, maybe it's too far away, something like that. You flip to F5, it tells you what's going on with it, and you, you can make your decision based on that. So like many first missions, this first mission is fairly straightforward. You destroy some freighters that don't fight back. You wait for the Corvette Bixby to be captured and to enter hyperspace. Once your mission is done, a mission complete message comes across the bottom of the screen. This is also very important. Do not leave the mission area until you see this message, even if you think you're done. There's likely some small objective that you missed, and if you leave before you see that mission complete message, you will fail the mission. This brings us to one of the disadvantages of X-Wing over other space sims. Uh, this game is very, very heavily scripted. Each mission must have all objectives completed in order for the mission to succeed. 
If you need to destroy all fighters and you disable one by accident, the mission may fail. If you don't disable an enemy ship before it jumps out, a rescue shuttle may not jump in and you will fail. If a target enemy ship is destroyed before a rebel AI ship can capture it, the rebel AI ship will just kind of sit around forever. It's not a huge problem, but you know some missions do really feel quite a bit less dynamic than they could otherwise. Also, uh, you know, in this game, there are no changes to mission objectives partway through the mission. Whatever your goal is at the start, game doesn't throw you any curveballs. That's what it is. Missions in and of themselves do not have story development. They are pure action. Uh, the other downside to this heavy scripting is there isn't a branching story arc. There isn't a branching mission structure in this game. If you get stuck on a mission, you are stuck there. You cannot pass it. If you can't pass it, you don't move forward. You have to keep beating your head against it. There's no option to fail a mission and move on to a losing track like in Wing Commander. So that is something they could have maybe done a little bit better. But I will say, however, that the action in this game is very smooth and very fast paced. You need to keep track of many, many factors in even the simplest mission. You're generally tasked with protecting another ship at one point or another in each mission and ensuring it completes its own series of tasks. In addition, you have to pick and choose which enemy craft to attack in which order. At times, some TIE fighters might be harassing you, but you'll have to contend with them until you take out TIE bombers that are threatening your capital ship. At times, the mission design is downright devious. For example, in Tour 1, Mission 4, you are protecting a disabled rebel corvette from an Imperial frigate. The frigate will jump in and out of the area, disgorging TIE bombers who are attacking, who are attacking the, the corvette that you need to defend. So the frigate jumps in on one side of the engagement zone about 10 kilometers away and dumps a flight of TIE bombers. A single TIE bomber can take out a Corellian corvette, and there's three of them, so you've got to deal with this. So you start flying towards them to attack, and obviously this action takes you away from the Corvette. As you're engaging the TIE Bombers, the frigate jumps back in on the other side of the zone, 10 kilometers away from the Corvette on the other side, which means that it could be 15 to 20 kilometers away from you. So you need to deal with the first set of bombers and then burn rubber over to the new set of bombers way on the other side of the Corvette. And uh, you, know, you gotta do that before they get into range of the Corvette, launch their torpedoes and destroy it. It's mission design like this that really makes this game compelling, but also at times quite frustrating. This isn't just run and gun in the Star Wars universe. You have to think about what to do, think about what your objectives are, think about what enemies are the biggest threat, and sometimes that biggest threat may not be the biggest threat to you, it may be the biggest threat to your objective. So that's that for gameplay. There's much, much, much more to say, but yeah, I think I've given you a, a pretty decent idea of, uh, of how the game rolls. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So though I didn't really think it back in 1993, X-Wing was amazingly revolutionary for its time. So the game required at least a 386DX with 1 meg of RAM, DOS 3.1, and a VGA display. 
For sound, it supported a wide variety of sound hardware, including the Sound Blaster for digital sound and the general MIDI standard for music. It did support the Roland MT32, but by this time, the general MIDI, kind of with the Roland SC55 and other cards like that, uh, sounded much more realistic. So being that I was a huge fan of Wing Commander when X-Wing came out, I was expecting a similar graphic experience here, where Wing Commander presented us with a very cool looking sprite-based representation of ships, fooling us into thinking the 2D sprites were actually 3D, X-Wing went the other way. In X-Wing, we are presented with a full 3D game engine presented in 320 by 200 VGA at 256 colors. Initially, I was a bit taken aback. Where were the incredibly detailed ship sprites of Wing Commander? The ships in X-Wings were decidedly more polygonal. The engine didn't support shading, so ship surfaces were flat colors, kind of flat grays, flat reds, things like that. Uh, you could most definitely tell what you were looking at, but right off the bat, I kind of felt at the time that the graphics were lacking. Uh, I thought that for about the first 35 seconds of gameplay. In Wing Commander, and other games like it, the sprite-based ships look good at a certain distance from you. As you moved in close, everything pixelated to this incomprehensible mess. Capital ships lacked a sense of scale, and the game lacked a sense of speed. X-Wing had none of these issues. The 3D engine in this game lends itself to fast-paced action. TIE Fighters are incredibly maneuverable, and you can certainly tell when you're flying against a rookie AI or a veteran. Shimps will kind of jink and juke around, making them hard to hit. Enemy fighters will zoom past you in a flash. They'll turn on a dime, and they won't just kind of fly around in a straight line. Uh, if you happen to get close to a Star Destroyer, it takes time to fly its entire 1.6 kilometer length. Once you get past the lack of shading, this engine really does stand out as a technical marvel. Also, being that this is a Star Wars game, sound is incredibly important. All sound effects are fully licensed from the movies. The laser cannons make the right sounds, the ties make the appropriate flyby whine. The sound design in this game is what makes it really Star Wars to me. After the sound, we must, I mean we must, talk about the music. As I said above, the original game used general MIDI music. Of course, we have more than a smattering of uh, Star Wars themes like, you know, the traditional Star Wars fanfare, the Imperial March, and other instantly recognizable Star Wars themes expertly translated into MIDI. But the more interesting thing is the game also contained a huge amount of music inspired and adapted from the main Star Wars soundtrack. It was simultaneously recognizable as Star Wars, but very fitting for whatever game situation we found ourselves in. The sound designers and composers on the project really outdid themselves. The music was done by old hand LucasArts music men Peter McConnell, Michael Zeland, and Clint Bajakian. Of course, the iMuse interactive music system was leveraged heavily in this game. This was the first time it was used outside of adventure gaming. So when enemy ships would enter the area, an Imperial March little musical cue would seamlessly insert itself into the musical flow. Uh, another cue was there for when allies would appear. Almost any relevant event in a mission, the destruction of an enemy, that of an ally, an objective achieved, they all had musical cues which fit into the main mission music line perfectly. Not only were these cues entertaining, they helped you notice major events occurring in amidst the action. The MIDI in this game and the follow-on games is incredible. They were able to take Star Wars music and not only make it their own, but make it a critical component of the gameplay. 
listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for development Okay, now that I've gone way too long on everything else, let's get to the good stuff, the dev story. X-Wing was conceived by Mr. Lawrence, or Larry, as he liked to be called, Holland. So Larry Holland. Holland first saw Star Wars when it was originally released in 1977. He claims to have seen it twice in theaters, and then really only a handful of more times before it would really enter his life. In 1979, he graduated magna cum laude from Cornell University with a bachelor's in anthropology. He'd spend the next two years on archaeological expeditions in Africa, Europe, and India. At this point, it looked like he was following in the footsteps of Indiana Jones over the footsteps of Luke Skywalker. In 1981, he entered UC Berkeley as a candidate for a doctorate in anthropology. He got a job working as a restaurant chef to kind of help him put himself through school, and uh, he soon realized that there was no way he would want to do this for the six years it would take for him to get his doctorate. Until this point, Holland hadn't really cared much for computers, and he had little experience with them. His roommate at the time, however, owned an Atari 800. Holland started noticing his roommate's attempts to create a game for that machine, and his interest was piqued. He started learning how to program games himself. He fell in love with the process, realizing that he felt much more accomplished creating something himself than simply studying the ancient inventions of others, which is what he eventually amounted archaeology to. He soon got a job with Human Engineered Software, or HESWare, in 1983, and worked on games for the Commodore VIC-20 and the C64. In 1984, he created his own development group named Microimagery. They worked closely with HESWare, and uh, he designed his first original game, Project Space Station, which I believe I may have actually played on the C64 at uh, a family friend's house when I was very young. I have very vague memories of this, but uh, I may have played this game. I'll have to investigate a little bit more. Uh, So this game allowed players to create America's first space station as the International Space Station wasn't around yet. It modeled realistic NASA hardware of the day. Holland claims that this first game fosters his love for complex simulations. Based on his growing reputation as a great developer, he was approached by Lucasfilm Games in early 1986 with an offer to work on the upcoming Labyrinth game based on George Lucas's, I believe it was George Lucas's, or maybe it was Spielberg, I can't quite remember. Anyways, based on the Labyrinth movie, and you you movie buffs can uh, can yell at me for getting that potentially wrong. Uh, This frankly didn't interest him very much, and he declined, as uh, he really wanted to continue working as a freelancer. He didn't want to kind of uh, bow to any master, I guess we want to say. However, by mid-1986, he heard about a Lucasfilm Games opening to convert some games from the C64 to the Apple II. Uh, Based on his previous experience working with both platforms, uh, he thought that this was more up his alley and signed on as a contractor. Much of his early work revolved around conversions and pure programming. However, at the time, like many uh, game development houses, Lucasfilm Games didn't have a huge staff and uh, had very small teams attached to each project. So because of that, he did get the opportunity to flex his musical and game design muscles when there was no one else around to do the work. So after some rejected proposals for new game projects, he scored with a proposal he called Airwing. This was to be a World War II flight simulation, which would eventually see the light of day as Battlehawks 1942. It's interesting to note that with this game, it was decided that 2D bitmap sprites should be used since the 3D polygonal models of 1987-88 made it difficult to differentiate the planes. Battlehawks was a great success and led to sequels, which we will talk about another day when we cover that whole series of games, because we most certainly will. 
around the same time, 1988 that is, uh, the idea was being bandied about Lucasfilm Games as executive management that they should look into building a space combat simulator. It was pretty obvious that being that this was Lucasfilm, uh, Star Wars should be the source material for such a game. If they can't use Star Wars, who can? Well, guess what? They couldn't use Star Wars. Sadly, the licensing for Star Wars video games was held by Broderbund at the time, so the idea was shelved. A couple years later, in February 1991, Broderbund's license expired. Lucasfilm Games asked one of their senior developers, Edward Killam, to take on the project. At the time, Holland was working on secret weapons of the Luftwaffe and uh, actively questioned if anyone even wanted a Star Wars space sim. Now, looking at that now, you'd think that this was a no-brainer. People love Star Wars. However, if you think back to early 1991, Star Wars was off of most people's radars. It was kind of the, the drought time for Star Wars. It was only in May of that year, with Timothy Zahn's novel Heir to the Empire and the ensuing Thrawn book trilogy, that kickstarted public interest in Star Wars once again. Uh, with that event, Holland took on the project along with Killam and another developer. So it was basically these Timothy Zahn books that picked up interest in Star Wars again, and that, along with a bit of pushing from some other uh, internal people at LucasArts, uh, Holland took on the project. So since Lucasfilm now held all licensing for Star Wars, uh, the team could really take their time and craft a great game. There wasn't going to be any competition coming out for Space Simulator Star Wars games. Holland took charge of the flight engine, and Killam was heading the front end of the game, so menus, transitions, story, and all the rest of that stuff. Taking cues from the cinematic quality of Wing Commander, they, they really wanted to have as many possible approaches to mission success as they could think of, and you know just kind of have a very replayable experience. So initially, the uh, 2D sprites were used as they had been in Holland's previous flight sim games. However, the decision was eventually made to roll the game over to polygons instead of using 2D sprites. The upgrades to the Battlehawks 3D engine produced by team member Peter Lindcroft really pushed the envelope for pure 3D look and performance. At times, the team thought it was too advanced, it wouldn't perform well on systems of the day. These concerns remained throughout the development process right up until release. This was a constant sticking point of let's roll back to 2D, this isn't going to work, it's not going to look as good, it's not going to go as fast, it's going to run like crap on current systems, etc, etc. But they went out and the 3D stayed. So for things like setting, ship performance, and mission designs, the team dove into the Star Wars movies and the newly developing Star Wars expanded universe literature. Uh, the main focus of the game was to make the player feel as though their efforts had a grand effect on the war, trying to recreate the scale of Luke Skywalker's adventure without just copying Luke Skywalker's adventure and making you play Luke Skywalker. That was not the focus of the game. Holland also really felt the game should show both sides of the conflict, uh, and it was initially planned to have both a rebel and an imperial campaign in X-Wing. This proved overly complex, and the scope was quickly trimmed down to solely the Rebel side of, uh, of the game. So X-Wing released in February 1993 and was the first Star Wars game to be published by LucasArts. The game followed a newly minted Rebel pilot, who uh, by default was named Kian Farlander. The limited release special edition of the game shipped with a novella known as the Farlander Papers, which outlined Kian's backstory up to his recruitment into the Rebellion. This novella was later reprinted in the game's official strategy guide with additional story development between uh, mission guides. I actually used to own this guide, but lost track of it in the intervening years. I found a copy on Amazon for six bucks, so I actually have it on order uh, as, you know, I feel like revisiting the story of Kian Farlander. 
Now, aside from these Firelander papers, uh, the game never really created a default pilot for you. It never forced you to be Kean Farlander, which is why earlier I said the game really revolves around you and the backstory that you make. This is kind of like a suggested backstory, a little bit of additional reading. And, you know, if you want to go through pretending to be Kean Farlander, that, that was your choice. But uh, it's actually a fairly compelling story. It's, it's a nice little uh, Star Wars EU read. I don't think it's actually entered into the official canon. I don't think Kean Farlander shows up uh, in other Star Wars EU, though I might be wrong about that. But uh, as I said, good little read. The strategy guide is actually a fun thing to read as well. So um, yeah, of course, X-Wing, with all this, released to rave reviews, winning quite a few awards, including Best Simulation and Game of the Year for 1993. Later that same year, the game received two expansion packs. The first, Imperial Pursuit, picks up right after the destruction of the Death Star and covers the Rebels' escape from Yavin 4, since their base has now been compromised. The Empire knows where they live. The next expansion, B-Wing, covers the establishment of Echo Base on Hoth and the introduction of the B-Wing, a new bomber craft created to replace the aging Y-Wing. So this brings us to 1994 and the sequel to X-Wing, TIE Fighter. Holland and Killam didn't abandon their desire to show the conflict from both sides. Now, the team thought that they would encounter resistance trying to create an entire game from the perspective of the Empire, since all previous Star Wars efforts, the movies, the books, and all that stuff, was told from the Rebellion's point of view. However, LucasArts management was actually intrigued by the idea. So Holland and Killam went ahead with TIE Fighter, where you play a junior Imperial pilot, again with a default name of Marak Steel. Uh, his story was also shipped with a special edition of TIE Fighter. The team was careful to portray the Empire as attempting to maintain order in the galaxy and not as just this purely evil organization. They were also intrigued by Timothy Zahn's Grand Admiral Thrawn character from uh, his novels and decided to include his early career in the game's storyline. Players had complained a lot about the difficulty levels of X-Wing, saying that the game at times was frustratingly hard. So for TIE Fighter, the team put in difficulty levels and expanded optional objectives into the game. Now, completing optional objectives allowed you to enter the Emperor's inner circle. The bonus objectives are provided to you via a secondary briefing from one of the Emperor's agents in the briefing hall. The game engine was upgraded to include grad shading and a more controllable craft. So players could fly the TIE Fighter, the Interceptor, and the TIE Bomber from the movies, but also the new TIE Advanced, which is kind of a version of Darth Vader's TIE Fighter from the movie, uh, assault the Assault Gunboat, and finally the new Deadly Experimental TIE Defender. There are also many other kind of very cool gameplay improvements, like the addition of uh, multiple warhead types. So not only did you have concussion missiles and proton torpedoes, you had things like space warheads and rockets and other things like that, all with their different advantages and disadvantages. You could choose what type of uh, warheads to load your ship with. Uh, you had the ability to match speeds with your target. A lot of other cool things like that. There were beam weapons like tractor beams and uh, other things like that. So a lot of really cool little gameplay and, uh, and housekeeping improvements from the first game. In addition to better graphics, more ships, TIE Fighter was just X-Wing, but better. So TIE Fighter, of course, was a huge success as well. That same year, the X-Wing Collector's CD-ROM released. The original game was upgraded to take advantage of all of TIE Fighter's new features and its new engine, uh, briefings were voiced, as you heard in the little snippet that I gave you there, and uh, both expansions were included on the CD-ROM. Uh, the copy protection was also removed because in 1994, 
I believe, yes, in 1994, uh, it was apparently inconceivable that you could copy 600 megs worth of CD. That's just crazy talk. Who's going to do that? So a couple years later in 1997, we saw X-Wing versus TIE Fighter. Now, this game was developed by Holland's newly incorporated company, Totally Games. He had left LucasArts and uh, reformed his, his group, called it Totally Games, and uh, LucasArts was merely the publisher on X-Wing vs. TIE Fighter. Uh, this game focused more on multiplayer LAN or internet play, and was the pinnacle of Holland's desire to allow players to experience both sides of a conflict. This new game used 3D accelerated graphics, allowed players to fly with up to seven wingmates on their own side, or play four-on-four four against each other. Now, sadly, X-Wing vs. TIE Fighter might have been a bit before its time, as it was plagued with many of the same issues that other online games of the dial-up era experienced. Uh, you know, there were major issues with network latency, lag, and uh, certain issues which would only crop up under heavy network load. LAN games tended to be pretty smooth, but internet games were virtually unplayable on dial-up connections, which, of course, aside from if you were playing out of a major university, were pretty much the choice for internet connections uh, in 1997. The other criticism of X-Wing vs. TIE Fighter was its lack of a single-player campaign. To combat this, an expansion named Balance of Power was released. It featured a more traditional campaign with story and cutscenes and all the rest. Though in 1998, both the original X-Wing and the original TIE Fighter were re-released once again as part of the X-Wing Collector series. Uh, the games were optimized for Windows 95 and upgraded to use the X-Wing vs. TIE Fighter engine with 3D graphics and blah blah blah. The in-game MIDI music was replaced by Redbook audio recordings of origin the original Star Wars score. Frankly, I don't love this change. It nullifies all the amazing context-sensitive music cues which really enriched the game for me. That great dynamic music is simply replaced by the Star Wars soundtrack, which I already have on a CD, on a loop. So finally, 1999 saw the release of X-Wing Alliance. X-Wing Alliance took the best from all the previous games and added even more. It had a compelling, fully voice-acted story told from the perspective of Rebel recruit pilot Ace Azamine, and uh, it also lets you pilot all the great Rebel craft from the previous games. In addition, Ace could fly his family's Corellian YT-1300 transport, which is basically the Millennium Falcon, and another YT-2000 freighters for family-based missions. Uh, this game was envisioned as Star Wars meets the Godfather, with Ace torn between his uh, commitment to the Alliance and his uh, family business's slightly shady dealings. Uh, the issues plaguing the multiplayer of X-Wing vs. TIE Fighter were resolved and more complex objective-based multiplayer missions were introduced. The engine, and I'm still actually talking at this point in 1999, I'm still talking about the 1988 Battlehawks engine, was further upgraded to allow even more ships into the battle area, better 3D, and all this. So this 10-year-old engine at this point is, is just as cutting edge as it was when it first came out. They just kind of kept working on it and kept upgrading it. So based on this you know, newly upgraded engine with all these additional ships that can be in the area, they were able to recreate the epic Battle of Endor, where you take your YT-1300 into the core of the Death Star 2 and destroy it with Wedge Antilles flying off of your wing. Uh, X-Wing Alliance truly is an incredible Star Wars experience, and uh, you know, despite the fact that it was very well received, I feel like most people never got the chance to, uh, to play it because kind of around 1999 tended to be the time where space sims were kind of Hitting their, uh, hitting the end of their, uh, their time at the top. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. 
So what's the future hold for X-Wing? Well, since 1999, frankly, we haven't heard much about Star Wars-based space simulators. Now, with the recent acquisition of Lucasfilm by Disney, frankly, I really don't know what to expect. Star Wars The Old Republic wasn't a huge success in the MMO space, so with that and the uncertainty about Star Wars' new direction, I really have no clue where things will go from here. I know they've mentioned that LucasArts is going to focus more on the mobile gaming space and things like that. I mean, I would love a remake of X-Wing or some other new Star Wars-based space sim, but uh, who knows? With Chris Roberts' Star Citizen project, maybe we'll see rebirth of this genre, and maybe we will not. I know I would kill to be able to play this game with modern graphics, modern 3D, all this stuff, but only time will tell. So where can we get X-Wing today? Well, unfortunately, like other LucasArts game uh, IPs that haven't been taken over by Telltale Games, and God knows they're not going to let go of Star Wars, uh, there isn't a way to get X-Wing or any of the games in the series digitally. You can definitely find CDs still floating around on eBay, and um, you know I have a DOS X-Wing collector CD-ROM that I got running flawlessly and relatively easily under DOSBox. The only thing you have to do is kick up the uh, the processor cycles because even if you set it to max, it doesn't quite play smoothly, but that's a very minor thing. Uh, I also still own my TIE Fighter, X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, and X-Wing Alliance CDs, though they are all Windows 95. I was able to get them running uh, on Windows 8 64-bit, but there are certainly some steps to go through. They all use the old 16-bit install shield application to, uh, to, to run the actual game install, and 16-bit, obviously, applications won't run on a 64-bit OS. There's no 16-bit emulation, because I guess they figured that that's crazy talk. But luckily, some quick Googling reveals that some fan-made 32-bit installers which allow you to get the game running on a modern OS. There also was a 3D patch at one point to enable 3D hardware emulation, but sadly, LucasFiles, the site that hosts it, which was obviously not owned by Lucasfilm, uh, seems to have gone away. The games still run fine in software rendering, but unfortunately, they don't look as good as they could. So if anyone can get their hands on that uh, TIE Fighter 3D patch or the X-Wing 3D patch, let me know, because I would love to give that a whirl. Okay, a few more emails, some of which, well, all of which at this point have to do with X-Wing. So let's start with Martin, who uh, sent in an email this week, as I said, talking about X-Wing. So Martin writes, My cousin was the one who introduced me to UMB Cast a few months ago. He did it by showing off some of the older games you talked about, including MechWarrior and Command and & Conquer, that we both grew up on. I was ecstatic to find a person who was enthusiastic about not only games of a forgotten era, but who also delved into the history, production, and uh, the behind-the-scenes politics that made it happen. So imagine my frustration when I noticed X-Wing nor TIE Fighter have been featured on your show yet. After you did Red Baron and Wing Commander, I was sure you were going to follow up soon with X-Wing, but you teased and stringed us along with other, still great, episodes in which you only mention X-Wing, but not much else. But now, finally! It's time to talk about one of the best games ever made and another game that defined my childhood. By sheer coincidence, most of the games I emailed you about have core multiplayer experiences that I had with my father and sister, but X-Wing is one of those games I had a singular relationship with. Like Wing Commander SNES, not as bad as Joe Says Edition. The only time I could remember doing any sort of multiplayer in that game was in the trench run level where my father piloted and I effectively became his R2 unit regulating his shields and power levels. Fittingly enough, my father introduced me to the Star Wars movies just minutes before playing X-Wing for the first time. 
I was no older than seven, and it was a literal dream come true to immediately start flying missions for the Rebel Alliance just as my young childish imagination escaped that tired, old, even for then, VCR my dad had. Unfortunately, my my experiences were limited to my summer visits until my father sent me some copies of X-Wing with me one summer. He even sent me the original manual as he just had copied all the codes he needed to pass the copy protection on a notebook somewhere. Sadly, no less than a few months after owning the manual, it was lost to me. I really don't remember how. I was pretty bummed about it until I grew up and found the RM Free X-Wing CD edition. But several college moves later and the game is lost to me yet again, and I have gone many years without playing it. But it shouldn't be this way. You see, not o- you're not the only one teasing X-Wing, Joe. Oh no, when LucasArts released a slew of older LucasArts titles, I was certain the X-Wing Sims would be released too. I quickly scooped up all the Dark Forces and some adventure games to boot in hopes the sales would convince LucasArts to further supplement their releases, but alas, nothing else showed up. X-Wing was easily one of the flagship Star Wars games of its day, and it puzzles me why it wasn't released on Steam. I know GOG has been courting LucasArts for years to release games for their platform, but a quick look in the forums leads me to believe that LucasArts is wary of the anti-DRM stance GOG has. I hope the recent Disney acquisition has thawed the stance for the better. Well, I'll go ahead and let you go on about X-Wing proper. Thanks for finally doing it. P.S. Thank you so much for your kind words about my sister last episode. It meant a lot to me and my family. I'm happy to report that she has started to open her eyes, which is a good sign. She has a long road to recovery still yet to go, and every prayer and well wishes helps. Well, thank you, Martin. And, uh, you know, I will certainly keep wishing and hoping and praying for your sister, and I hope everyone else does. And with regard to uh, to X-Wing... You know, the, the funny thing about X-Wing is, for some reason, like, I've read a lot of gaming magazines and stuff, but I was never really, how do I put it? I was never really psyched for game releases. I almost didn't know when games would release back in the day. And maybe that's because there wasn't an internet, and, you know, I'd occasionally buy a computer gaming world and read stuff and whatever. But I remember actually seeing, I was flipping through a computer gaming world, or maybe it was a Game Pro or something like that at the time, and I turned the page... And I saw an ad for X-Wing and that it was coming soon. And I think I freaked out. Like, I must have been 1993, 2013. I must have been like 12. No, wait, 81 to 91. I was 10. Yeah, 12, 13 years old kind of a thing. See, I'm bad at math. And um, I turned the page and I freaked out. I think I, I, I ran around. I went, oh my God, they're making a Star Wars game. I get to fly an X-Wing. Because at the time, I remember I was a huge Star Wars fan. I would come home from school every day and watch A New Hope after school when I got home to the point where I wore out the beta tape and it was all red and gross. And yeah, I remember running around and going to my dad and going and pointing and saying, that's an X-Wing. And then there was a picture of an Imperial shuttle. And I said, that's a Y-Wing because it was shaped like a Y, even though clearly that was not a Y-Wing and whatever. And yeah, I, I got this game as soon as I could. And that was not something that I ever did at the time. I would, you know, when I felt like I wanted a game or I had gathered up enough money to buy a game, then I'd go to the store and I'd buy a game, but I was never really excited about releases before they happened. But for X-Wing, I most certainly was, and yeah, it was just just an incredible game, and just like you, I have a very singular relationship with it. It's a single-player game. There wasn't any multiplayer. There wasn't any multiplayer until X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, and it was just this incredible experience of, like, I'm, I'm a pilot in Star Wars. I'm not Luke Skywalker. I'm not a Jedi. I'm not anything special. I'm just a regular guy who's doing stuff that a regular guy can do. And, you know, maybe that was the beauty of it, is that you weren't a superhero. You were just a guy 
And yeah, anyways, thank you so much for the email. And I'm glad that uh, I finally got around to doing this one as well. Next, we have a message from BJ. He writes, Oh, wow. So glad you're covering the X-Wing series. My first exposure was actually the first book in the X-Wing series by Michael A. Stackpole, Rogue Squadron. The first chapter or two, which was directly inspired by X-Wing and the Redemption scenario specifically. But one of the games I played right around this time was Rogue Squadron 3D, the PC version of the N64 classic, which I played with my Gravis Blackhawk joystick, which was new, which was new for me at that time. Too bad they didn't come up with a more widely available USB version because I love the Logitech Attack 3 joystick I have now. Nothing else these days holds a candle to my old Gravis Blackhawk. I never played any of the old X-Wing games unless Rogue Squadron counts, which it might to some people. Hopefully LucasArts gets its vast back catalog onto GOG very soon because I know the games are getting harder and harder to find for a decent price through legitimate means, not to mention getting those games to work on modern systems. Egad. Anyhow, good luck on this show, Joe, and I will talk to you again soon. Well, thank you, BJ. And um, yeah, I know I know I mentioned, and I, I, I neglected to, to say it. I know I'd mentioned I would talk about uh, control uh, control schemes for these games. So so there we go. So uh, I didn't have a Gravis Blackhawk. I, I do feel like I remember playing this game at the time with my CH Flightstick Pro, and I definitely played it with my Gravis Advanced joystick. And actually what I did for quite a while, long before I started this podcast, was we had an old Pentium 200. It was an NEC Pentium 200 that my dad bought, you know, in 1995 when a Pentium 200 megahertz was was the bomb diggity. And that machine was a tank. It ran, I think we bought it in 1995, and it ran easily until 2008 or 2009 when I think we finally threw it away. But I kept... When I lived at my parents' house, I kept that computer with the old 15-inch CRT monitor in my room running Windows 98 Second Edition just so, because before the days of DOSBox and all that, so I could play old games like X-Wing and Privateer and Privateer 2 and stuff like that. And I kept my Gravis Advanced joystick plugged in on the serial port, and that is how I played these games. This time around, I used my, my Logitech Wingman 3D, but these games, I mean, they really, you don't need a joystick the game will start if you don't have a joystick but you cannot play this game with a mouse and keyboard the control just isn't there like when you move the mouse the it's not like an fps like using the mouse doesn't make things go faster it's very kludgy it's very unnatural so yeah like for this game definite uh, four axis joystick or two axis joystick whatever you want to call it and um yeah so that's that's what i use i definitely use uh use a joystick and I don't really, frankly, think that there's another way to uh, to go about doing it. So thanks for that, BJ. Um, you know, I'm not covering Rogue Squadron or any of the uh, the Rebel Assaults or anything like that as part of this series, because I guess technically they're not. They don't follow in this whole progression of games. I'll probably cover them at some other point, because again, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and Rebel Assault was very special in a different way in that when it came out, it was a beautiful game. But we'll get into that another day. Thank you so much for that email. And um, yeah, great. One more here. We got a voicemail from Josh. Hey, Joe. This is Josh from Portland, Oregon. Uh, I know you're going to get a lot of mail on this one, so I will keep this short. But, uh, yeah, I was a big fan of the uh, X-Wing series as a kid. Um, TIE Fighter was my game, for sure. Uh, I was always kind of a uh, villain super sympathizer. Uh, you know, I prefer um, Darth Vader to Luke Skywalker, uh, Doc Ock to Spider-Man. Uh, definitely prefer Magneto to... Uh, Dr. X. Anyway, uh, so getting to play as the Empire was a lot of fun. Uh, but the thing that I remember 
that set this game apart for me as far as flight sims, because I was a big flight simulator geek, um, and still am, uh, was that it was the first game I remember, especially in the space sim field, where they introduced speed matching. And uh, that made dogfighting a lot more fluid and, and actually kind of possible. The, the big problem that I remember having with flight sim games uh, in that era was that when you would try and dogfight, especially in a real-world sim, it was it, it was extremely difficult to take down an enemy with guns or with you know close-range weapons, or be guns, lasers, what have you, because uh, there was always a danger of overshooting um, your speed and flying right past the enemy. And that happened. I, I can't even say how many times. One, one of my one of my favorite games as a kid uh, was a game called Evasive Action. I, I don't know if it was that well known. But uh, it it sort of had uh, every era, you know. You could you could uh, dogfight in World War One, World War Two, um, sort of future jet fighter, and then um, space. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Space sim was pretty cool, but it was impossible to not overshoot. So usually you had to use your uh, you know quantum torpedoes or whatever it was in the game. Um, and that was the cool thing about X-wing. Um, and uh, specifically TIE Fighter was that you match the speed of your enemy, you know, get on a six and then take him down, and that was fun. Um, also, they I loved the fact that they treated space a little more realistically, I feel, like, than the Star Wars movies did because uh, you could actually just stop in space. And uh, in the movies, you know, the, the ships would dogfight and fly like they were in atmosphere, um, which was a lot more fun to watch, honestly. But being a Star Trek kid, it, uh, I really enjoyed uh, the fact that they sort of reeled it up a bit for for the games anyway that's my two cents thank you to uh, joe for putting out the podcast we all love it take care thank you josh and and yeah you know it, it, it is cool that they did model the game so that you could come to a dead stop because being that it was space that that made a lot of sense and, and frankly that was probably only a very minor change to the underlying game engine that they used on battlehawks which was obviously a world war ii flight sim and, uh, you know, all they had to do was, was turn off the, uh, the, the gravity simulating stuff, the, the stall warnings and all of that. But, and that was kind of a, I, I didn't mention it in the dev story, but that's something that, that Lawrence Holland said. He said, you know, I, I thought that it would be really cool if we took, you know, as we watched the Star Wars movies and I really paid attention to the way that the, the ships fought. And George Lucas has said this countless times in interview that, uh, you know, he modeled all the combat on World War II dogfighting. So, you know, it's very understandable that uh, that the ships would handle the same way, aside from, you know, a couple of little nods to the fact that they're in space and, you know, you could come to a dead stop and you could go slowly without worrying about being less maneuverable and all that. Frankly, you know, Independence War was probably the most realistic thing, game we've covered in that sense in that there's inertia and you don't necessarily have to, you know, keep your engines running to keep moving and... and and all that, but but you know, for Star Wars and the Star Wars universe and the, the rules that are laid down in Star Wars, I think X Wing did an incredible job. And with regard to the speed matching, I fully agree that was like a, a, a lifesaver. And uh, in the the post the, the collector's edition versions of X Wing, they introduced that feature, and the follow on editions of X Wing, they 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 introduced that feature, and it's certainly helpful. Though at times, if you were in an X Wing. And your shields were at full, and you wanted to take down a TIE fighter really fast. Well, you could just smash into it, and you could survive at least one of those kind of hits. And uh, you know that that did occasionally become a little bit of a uh, of a tactic.
So big question, does X-Wing hold up today? Well, for me, and remember, I was a massive fan of these games at the time, and I am a massive Star Wars fan still today. This whole series holds up great. Well, except maybe X-Wing versus TIE. Uh, all these games are challenging, they're fast-paced, and they are very, very Star Wars. This isn't a thousand years before the movies like recent games. This is the Star Wars we knew, and this is the Star Wars that we love. The pinnacle for me are the DOS Collector's Editions. They have all the content. The TIE Fighter engine with all of its improvements, the dynamic mini music, they are just great. The Windows versions are also fine, it's just the music that I frankly don't really love. For the most modern experience, X-Wing Alliance is also amazing. The story is much more dynamic, the gameplay is much more varied, it's much more of a modern style space simulator. If you are a Star Wars fan and you have not tried these games, you really should. They are incredible. If I rated these games on a scale, which I do not, X-Wing and its follow-on games would get top points. Try them out. Get your hands on them. Go on eBay. Do whatever you need to do. Try these games. Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. So that is that. Thanks, as always, to everyone who emailed in. I am so glad I finally got to talk about this awesome game series. Frankly, I almost didn't record this show because I kept wanting to go back to play, and I probably will once I put the show out. I think uh, I'm going to keep these ones in my docket. These aren't these playthroughs were not just for research. I really want to go back and play these games. They are so much fun. So I put it to the Facebook group for next week's show or next uh, next time's show, not next week, in the, the next show, which will ar- arise in two weeks. And uh, the votes seem to have come out for Fallout. So we're going to go post-apocalyptic with that series next time around. In addition, the next show will be the one-year anniversary of the podcast. I'm not really going to do anything special, but if you guys have anything to say about Fallout or the show because it's the one-year anniversary or whatever, whatever, feel free, as always, to drop me an email or preferably a voicemail at podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks, as always, to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. You can listen to his podcast, Take Him With You, at takehimwithyou.com. You can check out the show notes for my wonderful little show at umbcast.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. We post all kinds of fun stuff over there. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. Me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. For some reason lately, I'm a little more active on Twitter than I usually am. Don't ask me why. I'm a little snarky sometimes, but whatever. Uh, Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. You can leave me reviews there. I really do appreciate those. And that is that, everyone. And we will see you next time for Fallout here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today 
at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.